The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles in the Gospel of Matthew. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. A reading from Acts chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. When they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they ordered them to leave the council while they discussed the matter with one another. They said, what will we do with them? For it is obvious to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable sign has been done through them. We cannot deny it. But to keep it from spreading further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. And now a reading from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when, when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into internal punishment for the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to be here again at City Church. But I was reminded of my hometown when I walked in this morning, because like in Washington, D.C., everything leads to Russia. <laughs> what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Now, you know the bad news. You see it. You read it. You can't stop hearing about it every day of Washington, of politics, of media frenzy and conflict 
Every day, that's the bad news. You know the bad news. Here's some good news. After 15 cities on this road trip, here's the good news. Somehow, apparently, mysteriously, miraculously, Jesus has survived all of us Christians. He has survived, and everywhere I go, everybody wants a new, needed conversation about Jesus. So I was in New York, as you always are at the beginning of a book tour, and I used to go there as a kid because one of my... Good. Can you hear that? Okay, good to see you. <laughs> that tell you about Russia? <laughs> so in New York, one of my dear mentors was a woman called Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker. How many of you know Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker? She's about to be named a saint by Pope Francis. But Dorothy used to say, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be written off that easily. <laughs> but I remember going to see her in the lower, lower east side of Manhattan, lower west side, and there was this building next to Mary House where she lived and served the poor, and there was a graffiti up on the wall on that building. It's gone now, but I'll never forget that I love to look at that graffiti. It said, reporter, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think about Western civilization? Gandhi, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> so I've added to that in the prologue of this book. Reporter, what do you think of Christians following Jesus? Millennial, I think that would be a good idea. After this last election and a new regime in my city, I got legions of phone calls. Phone calls, every day, all day. From black pastors who were afraid of their youth group kids being racially policed from immigrant families and immigrant activists who didn't know if they'd be together by dinner because of the threat of deportations, by Muslims who didn't know if they were welcome here anymore. My university president, Georgetown, where I teach, he called, my students can't get back to the university. They've been banned. Calls, calls, calls. A senator would call and say, what do I fight? There's so much to fight. And I think they called me because, I mean, when you're doing this stuff 48 years, I was only 10, though, when I started. <laughs> when you do this stuff for a long time, people think that you'll know what to do. But I didn't. I didn't know what to do. But I'd wake up every morning at 4.30 because I couldn't sleep, and I'd go downstairs, and I'd just wrestle and be quiet. By the way, prayer is not just talking all the time. Prayer is stop talking. 
and listen. God knows Aunt Lucy is sick. <laughs> it stopped talking. Listen. It's trying to listen. So I ended up reading the book of Acts. And, you know, when you know Scripture, but you go back to it with new questions, there's always new stuff. So I, I saw here's, first of all, these disciples, the male disciples, note, were upstairs, terrified, scared. They wouldn't come down. They're all holding back and scared. They're afraid they'd be next. The women kept working, <laughs> but these male disciples were scared. Then the Holy Spirit came. Pentecost happened. You know the story? The Spirit comes. They go down the street, and they begin to preach and teach and heal. So here's what I saw in this text. Peter and John come out of this gate, and here's a disabled man who asks for their help. And Peter famously says, gold and silver have I none, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he did. People thought, whoa. Stirred the whole place up. Then they would go and teach. 3,000 came the first time. Then 5,000 the next time. Everything that happened, though, in the text I saw more than ever before was in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus we heal and teach and preach and live. In the name of Jesus. One uh, church leader who called was the first, uh, is the first black presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, who wasn't famous, now he is, he did the royal wedding sermon, remember that? He called, I'm just reacting, he said, I'm just immigration, refugees, I'm just reacting, how do I, how do I assert my faith, how do I act in my faith? Can we talk? He came down for dinner, five o'clock dinner, they kicked us out at 11 o'clock at night, and he wrote the foreword to the book. That, what he calls soul dinner, helped us get down to the name of Jesus. So we did a declaration called Reclaiming Jesus, a declaration. We had 20 of us signed it. We, we were called elders because we're old. <laughs> and I didn't want pastors to have to sign this because they could lose their jobs. So we're 20 old elders, can't do much to us anymore, so we signed it. And I do declarations, but my staff, young, smart, talented staff, they said, let's do a video. <laughs> I said, sure. They did. Five million people watched it. Five million people. So this, this is the book. So every morning, I'd go downstairs, and I would wrestle... I would wrestle. I would wrestle. One, two, three, four. Okay, here we are. I would wrestle <laughs> with these gospel texts, and I found eight questions that Jesus either asked or prompted. Eight questions. And this book is just about the eight questions. I'm not going to go through them all in the sermon. We'll do more maybe in the conversation downstairs. But let me just give you a couple. 
One of my favorites is this lawyer comes up to Jesus. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, love God, love your neighbor. It's kind of simple. Love God, love your neighbor. But then he asks the question back. He says, who is my neighbor? Now that's when I realized this lawyer was a Washington lawyer. Because <laughs> I know that tone of voice. He didn't say, who is my neighbor? He said, exactly who is my, let's narrow this down. <laughs> who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We all know that, no matter what uh, background you have, it's, he's a famous guy, this Good Samaritan. And a man's beaten and robbed and laying by the side of the road, and people keep passing him by and not helping him. Two religious leaders, because they were on their way to a vestry meeting, and they were late, I think, to that. But the Samaritan stops to help. Picks up the man, binds his wounds, takes him to an inn, makes sure he's taken care of, fed, housed, then comes back and pays for the whole thing. So the story, the lesson story is someone's in help, somebody needs help, stop, help, take your time, energy, money. Dr. King talked about, he preached on this parable once, the Jericho Road, said King, is a dangerous road. So you even take risk to help somebody. That's all good stuff, but that's not the message of the parable. It goes deeper. Because none of the Judeans around Jesus thought there were any good Samaritans. Samaritans were a, were a despised race, different than us. Stay away from them. Jesus takes a Samaritan, an other to them, makes him his model for who is a neighbor. Imagine that. And then this other Samaritan helps one who is other to him. Whoa. An other is my example of the neighbor who's helping an other to him. Your neighbor is the one who's different than you. Your neighbor is the one who's different than you. So I read all the commentaries, reread old friends' commentaries. I read Gustavo Gutierrez, Peruvian liberation theologian. He got it, he nailed it. He said, your neighbor is never the one inside your path. He's outside your path. You've got to seek your neighbor outside your path. You stay in your bubble, you won't ever find your neighbor. Find your neighbor outside your path, and he's the one, Jesus said, she's the one you have to love. So right now we have a regime in my city that targets the very people. Jesus said we're our neighbors. They're targeting the neighbor that Jesus said to love. 
Who is our neighbor? Who is your neighbor? May be underneath every political crisis and issue in Washington, D.C. That's one question. So I unpack all these in the book, try to apply them. But I do Jesus first. This is not a book about, what's his name? Trump, Trump, yeah. It's a book about Jesus. A book about Jesus. But I apply it to where we are right now. And let me make Ben clear. Donald Trump is not the cause of our problems. He's a consequence. He's a, he reveals. He, he shows what we've become. He's a consequence. So, another one. What is truth? Ever heard that? What is truth? Pilate's having a debate with Jesus and losing the debate. And so he says, oh, what is truth? And he washes his hands and crucifies Jesus. Now, this is a really important question. What is truth? Because all the strong men of the world, the would-be strong men, the autocrats, they always want to ask this question. There, there is no truth. There's no such thing really as the truth. It's all, you know, fake news. Alternative facts. There's nothing, there's no truth for you to, so just listen to me. Listen to my truth. I've got truth. How many times have you heard, believe me, believe me, believe me? This is more than just lying. I mean, presidents have a habit of lying. That's true. This one's a record setter. That's true. Well, Washington Post now says 13,000 lies, 13 per day. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> but underneath that is the idea of the truth is being undermined. Imagine that. Your politics, your families, your culture, the idea of truth, there's no more truth. It's whatever he says is truth. Another one. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Jesus' last supper with his disciples. What was the big deal? Remember? Who got to sit next to him, right? On either side. Who wants to sit in front? Well, they were fighting over who got to sit next to Jesus. And even their parents got involved. Did you see that? In your intro to me, you didn't mention the most important thing. Little league coach for 11 years, 22 seasons. I know this world. Parents putting their kids forward. I know this world. And Jesus, okay, okay. Now, you got to figure this out. The Gentiles, he means the rulers of the world, they lord it over the people, right? Lord it over the people. Not so with you. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it differently. A leader is the one who serves. Leader is a servant. Leader is the one who takes a catastrophe, a, a crisis, a terrible situation, like you're having again in California with fires. I looked at the evacuation this morning to see if we were in it. A leader takes a mess, and she or he finds a line to get people out. And then is the last in line. That's what leaders do. But they weren't getting it, so he said, let me show you what I mean. And he washes their feet. Leadership 
is foot washing. Lording it over is wealth and power and winning and losing and who's on top and who's big and who's strong. No, we're going to do it this other way, says Jesus. So then I go through, you know, every, the Caesar question, the power question, the peacemaker question, the fear question. That's a big one. But then I get to this last text, which I'll finish on here. Matthew 25. So I was raised, I don't know where you all were raised, different churches, backgrounds, or maybe no church at all, or other traditions. We've got lots of wonderful endorsements here from imams and rabbis. My rabbi imam friends tell me they feel safer when Christians talk about Jesus (laughs) than they often do. So I'm, every time, the front row is always empty. Because, can you hear me okay? Yeah? The closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it'll have on your life. <laughs> it's a brave man right here, here, pastor over here. So when I was a kid at my little church, I had to sit in the front row one night when the revival preacher came. On a Sunday night, he was something, we were told. And all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row. I was unsaved. My parents were worried. I was getting up in years. I was six. (laughs) Uh, And he said, Fred, I was sitting where you're sitting. If Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven and you would be left all by yourself. It got my attention. I realized I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. Asked my mom how to fix this. She always knew, don't let wrath stuff. God loves you and wants a plan for your life. I said, okay, I signed up. My, we evangelicals have many conversions. Uh, my second one was the big one. So now I'm 15, 16. I'm listening to my city, reading the papers, hearing the news, overhearing conversations. There's something really, really big seemed really, really wrong. And nobody in my white church, white school, white world would ever want to talk about it. Why did life seem so different, I was asking, innocently, obviously, in black Detroit than it was in white Detroit, just a few blocks away. They wouldn't answer the questions. So young people I see out here, here's my advice. Trust your questions, always. Trust your questions and follow them to wherever they take them. Mine took me to the city. And I met the black churches, never heard about them before. Took jobs alongside young men my age, but they're black and I was white. I'm making money for college and they're making money for families. And I realized we were born in the same city and we lived in different countries. Different countries. So... I came home one night, and one of the elders of my church said, son, you got to understand Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political. That's political. Our faith is personal. So here I am, teenage kid. This issue is ripping me apart. And he says, my faith has nothing to do with this. 
Then I decided, okay, then I don't want to have anything to do with it either. And I left with my head and my heart. I was gone that night. Joined movements of my time, Generation Vietnam, civil rights, anti-war, poverty, always racism. And I wasn't a Christian in those years of organizing. Lots of stories there, but uh, we shut down a university, as we did all over the country, 1970, Cambodia, Kent State, all that. But, but I decided from the organizing those years, I wanted to be somebody who was committed to changing the world. I was going to be an activist. <laughs> I wanted to be an activist. But I needed a foundation for that, a, a basis, a, a infrastructure. I needed I need the su sustenance. How do you sustain, guide that path of being an activist? So I was reading, like we all were at that time, Karl Marx, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, but I wasn't satisfied. And probably because I was raised in it, even though I was kicked out of the church, I never got shed of Jesus. So I went back to this New Testament, Book of Matthew. I found this Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor and poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. It, it was a reverse of the world's values. It was turning everything upside down. And it was meant to. It was Jesus' way. We were not called Christians back then. We were called people of the way. And this was the way. This was taught to all the early Christians, all of them. This is the way. It's how you live. I never heard one sermon in my life, in my church, on the Sermon on the Mount. Not one. Then I got to Matthew 25, which you just heard read. I read that, and I couldn't believe it. It's what I call the it, it was me text. It was me. I was hungry. It was me. I w it was me. Me. I was hungry. I was thirsty. It was me. I was naked. I was a stranger. I was sick in prison. It was me. Lord, when do we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and in prison? and not help you, had we known it was you, we would have formed a social action committee in our church. No. We know it was you. I was hungry. I was working two jobs already, but I couldn't feed my family, and they cut my nutrition program anyway. I was, I was naked. You couldn't grow any food on our land in Guatemala, and there was, you couldn't eat. And then gangs and drug dealers... They were going to make my kid a soldier and rape my daughter, so I picked up my kids and I walked 2,000 miles to the United States to get asylum. I heard you get asylum. Then they took my kids and put them in cages. Everything got stripped away, naked. I was a stranger. The word, means Im word in Greek there means immigrant. That's the meaning of the word. I was immigrant, refugee. I was sick with a friend in, in Oregon. He got cancer. Young man, family. Insurance companies kept saying no, 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 no. 
but he was, he was organized and he, he's a fighter, he's an activist, a lawyer, and he finally, finally got coverage. Seven to ten, seven to months to a year became 12 years now, and he's got grand, I went out to dinner with his grandson. They keep taking my health care away. They keep cutting my Medicaid. I was in prison. You know, black and white drug use is exactly the same. But incarceration is all black and brown. Four times. So I was racially incarcerated. And as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. To me. It was me. Nothing I ever saw was clearer than that. It was, it was me. So, you want something practical to do? Everybody always does, so I got something for you. You know those uh, end zones in football games where they have a Bible verse? You must have seen those. What's a Bible verse? John 3.16. Bible verses. I'm going to watch the World Series tonight. I'm a Nats fan, D.C. I'll be, you know. I want you to make a different Bible verse. Go to all the games, all the rallies, political rallies, Republican, Democrat. Take your sign. John 3.16 says, look it up. Look it up and read it, right? Look it up. Look it up. Read it. Matthew 25, look it up. I'm going to see Matthew 25 signs all over the country in 2020. Look it up. What does it say? You heard it read? Look it up. Look it up. It kind of says it, it all. So, the intensity of this season, media, politics, I know you must feel it. Um, we heard in our lit liturgy, all you who labor and are heavy laden, do any of you feel in these days heavy laden? When you watch the news and the politics and the anger and the fighting, all sides back and forth. Do you feel heavy laden? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Live this way. You'll be like salt and light. And I got a whole new sense of that in reading these texts. Salt is what preserves the values that are necessary for good human communal life. Trust and loyalty and fidelity and love and honor and fairness. We're the ones who've got to preserve those values. And then light, light shines on what's wrong and shows it up. It's got to change. Every new generation has a job to decide what is no longer tolerable for them. What is not going to, we won't accept it will be changed. The Parkland kids, this is, we're going to change this. We're going to vote. 14-year-old kids striking for climate Justice, this is going to change. I'm sorry, we're done. We need to have salt and light. Preserve what's good. And shine a light on what needs to, to change. We're going to have a longer conversation about this this afternoon. But I've been encouraged. I've been encouraged, Fred, because afterwards what I hear from people is in a time like this, they can feel encouraged and even hopeful. Hope is what we most need right now. 
Don't let anybody take that away from you because hope isn't optimism. Desmond Tutu, another mentor of mine, taught me hope is not optimism. Optimism is a feeling, a mood. Hope is a decision you make because of your faith. You decide to have hope because of your faith. And as I would say, hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Amen.